Thank you, Charity. Please take your Bibles with me this morning as we turn in the Gospels to the Gospel of Matthew. Let's turn together to the Gospel of Matthew this morning, and we're turning to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, and we will turn back to our study of Matthew's Gospel and what is a tiny mini-series within that in chapter 10. We've been looking at Jesus commissioning his disciples and then they going out from him as apostles here in Matthew chapter 10. And we've already looked at up until this point, taken time to introduce ourselves, re-familiarate, uh, re- get re-familiarized, if you will, with Peter and Andrew. We now come t- today for a few moments at looking at the Apostle James, the Apostle James. So join me in Matthew chapter 10. We'll read verses 1 through 4. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And when Jesus had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, our subject this morning, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, another James, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed Jesus. This morning, we're going to look at for a few moments the Apostle James and and seek to glean by the Holy Spirit's help and power some lessons from his life and his relationship with, with Christ. If the Lord wills and we continue, we will be looking at his brother John and then Judas. We will not be looking at all the apostles, but we'll be taking the time to look at some of these key names and, and understanding their role in ministry as they served the Lord. As we look here in verse 2 at this mention of James, James the son of Zebedee, we are introduced to this fiery personality that is just as fiery, if you will, as Peter is. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew are included in what is considered maybe the inner circle of the disciples, of the apostles. In other words, Jesus saw fit to allow them to experience privileges that not all the apostles and disciples were able to experience. Of the four, even Andrew seems to be in the background, as we saw Andrew is the brother of Peter, and Andrew is simply known as the disciple, the apostle who brings other people to Jesus. And we saw that that last time together. Here we see the introduction of verse 2 of another set of brothers, not only Peter and Andrew, but now James and John. And one way you could describe James's biography is simply this. Oftentimes you'll see a biography in the store or someone, a life, the person's name, and then a life or that type of thing, we could entitle a subtitle to today's message as we consider James as James, both zealous and jealous. James, zealous and jealous. And before we begin to look at his life, I want to remind us in case you are new to the study or you're coming in this morning and you're wondering, wait a second, I thought we're to focus our attention upon Christ and Christ alone. Yes, no doubt about it. We're taking the Word of God as we go verse by verse, and we're taking a moment to look at how Jesus changed these men's life. And we talked about already that while some faiths and traditions tend to overdo their attention of the apostles, even to the point of worshiping them, that which we will never seek to do, others as well seek to ignore them. And in fact, most Christians today could not even name the 12 apostles or disciples if they were required to, if their life depended on it. So may that not be us, Grace Church. But as we look, and we're reminded of Paul writing in Ephesians 4, verse 20, where he tells the church, the Ephesian church, and us by extension, that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Paul affirms the church, and he says, you are God's building. And so that God is a wise master builder, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, where Paul says, according to the grace of God, which is given to me as a wise master builder. He says, I have laid the foundation, and another builds upon it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I want to make very clearly at the beginning of the message this morning, hear me, hear me loud and clear. There is salvation in no one else but in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other. 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But the scripture gives us this metaphor of, of building a building that begins with a cornerstone, that which is Christ. And then the apostles, he entrusted to them his doctrine. And they began to plant churches and to preach the gospel of Christ. And then upon that, here comes the, the apostle Paul who builds upon that. And then he pours his life into the churches. And we have the inspired canon of scripture. And we continue, if you will, that process of discipleship. Where we build upon the foundation of Christ, not as apostles, but as elders and pastor teachers. What I'm doing this morning, I'm taking the doctrine that I have received from the complete canon of scriptures, the word of God, and line after line we preach it week after week and we trust in it, we conform to it following the, the pattern of Christ. Now, Paul uses that word that I reference over in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 10, uh, blepo, the Greek word to take heed, be careful that you guard your doctrine, your life, and that you build upon the foundation that is Christ and Christ alone. That is the only test that we do that by. It's the word of God. So as we come to Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, James, the son of Zebedee. We want to consider this third apostle in this listing, the apostle of our Lord. So number one, we want to consider just for a few moments, James's background. James's background. James here in verse 2 is the brother of the beloved apostle John, also mentioned here in verse 2. He is designated as the son of Zebedee and distinguished from the other James that we saw, the son of Alphaeus. And succinctly put, there are a lot of Jameses in the New Testament era. There's a lot of Jameses in the Gospels. There's a lot of Jameses in the New Testament. And so these designations are given for us to distinguish exactly who they are. But James, the son of Zebedee, is not just simply an afterthought. It is noted and believed that Zebedee was a very influential man, that he was a very prominent man in Israel. In fact, John records for us in John 18 that the night Jesus was betrayed and arrested, that John himself was granted access, this is James's brother, to the high priest's courtyard. And it indicates that they had a familial connection. All we know of, of John and James is that they're the disciples of Jesus. But this designation that they're the son of Zebedee, it's believed that Zebedee was a very well-known, influential, wealthy man in his day that had access to the who's who, if you will. And so we see that played out as John gives us in his record of John's gospel almost insider knowledge, insider, here's the background story to the account. And John seems to have that information uh, with an access to the inside of of that high priest group. So we see that James comes from a family, a family of means and influence. And he's a part of this inner circle, as I noted just a moment ago, Peter, James, and John. Mark records for us in Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 37, that James was one of those that had the privilege of seeing the healing and the raising of, of Jairus' daughter. Not all the disciples were, were there to see that, but James was one of those present. James was also present in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, where the Lord was transfigured. Uh, Peter, James, and John were present there that day. And we'll come back and touch on that in just a moment when they saw Elijah and Moses and saw the transfigured Christ. Also, in Mark chapter 14, verse 33, we are told that James was present there with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in Mark 13, verse 3, he questioned Jesus privately on the Mount of olives. And so as we take not a lot of texts and passages of Scripture, but as we take these tapestries of texts and look at them here this morning, they tell us quite a bit that will help us for our learning and our uh, influence and our admiration and also for our edification as we grow in Christ as well. But here's the point. James was close to the Lord Jesus. Not all of them were. We could point succinctly to, to Judas, just to give an example. James wanted to be upfront, sometimes to a fault. James had a personal human relationship with the God in flesh, Christ Jesus, his Lord. And next to Peter and John, James was maybe the most influential apostle that we find. As we consider James's background, another thing we want to note is, is James's name is, comes from the Old Testament name Jacob. And that's helpful as we consider James's character because Jacob, if you remember, Jacob means deceiver supplanter, someone who is slick, if you will, or a heel 
catcher. We remember when Jacob called Esau's heel when the twins were born, Genesis 25, verse 26. But the very name reminds us of the way that Jacob would scheme with his mother, for example, to steal the birthright from his brother Esau. But we also see that James' name, as it's connected to Jacob, there are times in his character that we'll look at here in just a moment where he is true to his name as well. He shared this trait. So, for example, Matthew 27, verse 51, if you remember, James and John get their mother, how shameful this is, uh, these grown men ask their mother, Salome, to ask Jesus to let them have some insider trading secrets here. If you remember, they asked Salome to go and to ask Jesus to let them be seated on his right hand and left hand in the kingdom of God. And the result, of course, is the indignation of Christ. And it also leads to conflict and resentment among the other disciples. And it continued all the way up, this conflict and this resentment because of James's attempt and John's attempt to, to get that upper hand, if you will, ascension of recognition, ungodly ambition, it caused a strife among the disciples all the way up until the night before Jesus was crucified, Luke 22, verse 24. So James, we see, is at times, he's slick, he's working, he's conniving. In James's name, we get a glimpse of his character. In the early days of his discipleship in Christ, they were marked by Jesus constantly correcting him, much like he did Peter, calling out Peter and his sins, his sins of the heart and his sins by commission. Jesus will call out James's pride, which is on display, James's um, ambition. And these are all things that in the process of James's own discipleship, his following of Jesus, fulfilling Luke 9, 23, if you desire to come after me, if you desire to be my disciple, you must die to yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me. And what we're going to see this morning in a brief way is the sanctification of James, just like we saw in Peter. Remember that the fiery, bold, sin-laden Peter that we see so often in the Gospels. What a beautiful portrait it is to see the full composite of his sanctification as you get into the epistles of Peter. Well, we'll see the same in the life of James. Church, there's application for us. There's always application for us, and there's a word for us as a church in how we view the apostles with rose-colored glasses Sometimes sometimes we view these people that God chose and, and used in his ministry as those who had minor defaults and minor defects, but we view them as men who are perfected and ascended, if you will, even as we look at their writings in the New Testament. As we look at James's character and his growth and sanctification, it's a reminder that Jesus is at work in me and he's at work in you this morning. Don't get discouraged. Continue to grow. Continue to seek the Lord. And when you fail and when you sin, repent, my friends. Run to Christ and seek His equipping and His enabling through the sufficient Word of God. We see in James' life a very real, present, prideful ambition, self-seekingness, as I mentioned. And it's the cause of great conflict, even not only among the disciples, but for us as we just make application. When we seek to do these things, it brings great conflict to even the body of Christ. Proverbs 13 verse 10 says, by pride comes nothing, notice here, nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Friends, may the church help us, may the Lord, excuse me, help us to recognize pride, that secret sin of pride in our own hearts. Turn with me just briefly to Philippians chapter 2 verse 1. Philippians chapter 2 verse 1, as we consider this tendency of James and make application on this as we consider applying it to the church. Philippians chapter 2 in, in verse 1. Just verses 1 through 4. We were reminded where Paul writes to the church at Philippi. Calling them to die to self. Remember the greater context in this book of joy. In this epistle of Philippians is one of conflict resolution. And so that's why Paul begins to lay his case for beginning there in verse 1. He says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if there is any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy. How do we do that, Paul? By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition, strife, or conceit, 
But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Friends, as we see this in James's life or his biopic, his biography, may we also see it in our own hearts and lives as well. May we ask the Lord to be patient with us. And may we also be patient with younger believers in the faith who come to the Lord. And we'll see this as a theme here this morning. Experts tell us we know it by our own experience. We see it in the life of the church that some of the most zealous, powerful, passion-driven times of a believer is in the first six months to a year of their, of their life, of their faith life, if you will. And oftentimes what they need is a more seasoned, mature brother and sister in Christ to be patient with them, to love them, to come alongside them, and to love them through the, the zealousness, if you will. As we remember, James, zealous and jealous quick in the flesh, if you will, for what is seemingly a, a good cause. We need to remember the patience of the Lord as the Lord was patient towards James and knowing how to abase him and to humble him. So number one, we've looked at the background of, of James's life. Secondly, I want us to note James's personality. James's personality. And turning to Mark chapter 3, verse 17, or I can read it for you, Jesus references both James as, and John as the sons of thunder. In fact, maybe that's how you know of James and John, just when their names are mentioned. That's what comes to your mind. James and John, the sons of thunder. That literally means the sons of commotion. Oftentimes we may hear that sons of thunder. We think of it as bold, and that certainly is needed in the cause of Christ and in public preaching and those types of things. But while there is a good connotation to it, I think the Lord had something else in mind as well. James and John, you are the sons of thunder. We hear you. You stumble and you bumble and you come into the thing and sometimes mess it, you mess it up. It's very clear when we look at these passages of Scripture that James was a man of passion. And there's so many admirable things about that. Listen, we need men of passion. We have men who are passionate about sports and football and work. But oftentimes when it comes to the things of Christ, it's just it's silent or it's chill, or, or it's lukewarm. James was a man of passion, a passionate follower of Christ. In fact, one commentator calls him, he, he was a lion for Christ. In Luke chapter 9, verse 53, Jesus sent messengers before the disciples, before him to go to Samaria, to make preparations so that they would have a place to lodge and to, and to sleep the night on their way to Jerusalem. But when the Samarians saw that before, when he arrived that he had his face fixed like a flint towards Jerusalem. If you remember, the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along, and those of Samaria. They rejected Christ. They rejected his disciples. And this very rejection infuriated James. On one level, that is a good thing. So we think about James, zealous and jealous. There's one sense where jealousy for Christ and being zealous for Christ is a is a good thing, but it must be kept in check by the, by the Holy Spirit of God. We're, we're told of the life of Christ and his own personality that zeal for the Lord's house ate him up. He had a passion for the Father. He had a passion for the Father's glory. And there's no doubt that there's times where Jesus exercises this, his face fixed like a flint towards the cross, where they see what drives Jesus is a greater passion for the glory of God. But friends, here's the thing. We're not Jesus. Jesus is our example. And so many times we do what starts off as, as a passion for Christ and what starts off as a zeal for Christ and a jealousy for the things of Christ turns into us wielding our sword like Peter and there's ears and blood lying in the streets. It has to be molded by the Holy Spirit of God must be guided by the Word of God. So often what, what begins as a good thing turns into a bad thing. And we'll come back to Luke 9.53 in a few moments. But we see this passage that, that shows us his personality. Much like Peter, where Peter whips out that sword, as I mentioned, James is infuriated. James is, is, is frustrated. In Luke chapter 9, verse 54, when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire? to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did. Wow. Now, if you don't know your Old Testament history, that may sound really, really unusual. How, how hateful 
How unkind. Well, again, start with their passion for God, their zealousness for Christ. But the background context, we don't have time to, to break it down, is, is found in 2 Kings chapter 1, where King Ahab's son, I believe it's Azariah, um, fell, had a calamitous accident in his palace, and he fell to the ground off the side, and he was gravely injured. In fact, his life wavered in the balance and wondering if he would live through his accident. If you remember God's judgment upon Ahab and using Elijah to, remember, call down fire the first time upon the prophets of Baal. But there was a second time Elijah called down fire, in fact, multiple times. And if you remember, Azariah sent 50 of his, his priests to go inquire of the prophets of Baal, the false god of Baal, to see whether he would survive. And who do they encounter on the road to that inquiry? It is, it is Elijah. And Elijah hears of this, and it becomes filled with zeal for the glory of God. Elijah is obviously moved by the Spirit of God. And Elijah calls down fire, and those men are completely consumed. Here we have yet a second time where Elijah, the prophet of God, anointed of God, does exactly what James and John asked to do. So, so we need to put it in the context, lest we come to James and John, we're like, how, how, what evil men they are in their hearts. Who would ever desire to bring down fire? Well, listen... There was a time where that was used. But we're not in that time. That's not why Jesus has come. Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. He is, he is the way and the means of salvation. So no, James and John, I don't want you to call down fire right now and to consume the people that I desire to save. And so they are rebuked. In fact, the text tells us here in Luke 9 that Jesus turned and he rebuked them. And he said, you do not know the manner of spirit you are of. What does that sound like, friends? And how often does the Holy Spirit say, say to you and to me, whoa, 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 whoa. You started off good in your devotions this morning, but here at 10 o'clock in the morning, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. This is not of the Spirit's planting. You think you're doing the work of Christ, but you need to check your heart. Friends, oftentimes, if you're like me, I, I'm repenting all the day long and saying, oh, snap, I have gotten into the flesh. We need the Lord to help us. This is exactly what Jesus said to Peter when he said, Peter, get behind me, Satan, when Peter tried to get in the way of the Lord. Same type of moment, same type of dynamic. But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Here we see, again, an example, wonderful, passionate example of James's passion, and then also a very horrible illustration of it gone wrong. In fact, in this passage, we see James exhibits for us two great sins regarding passion, even in how it's used in our lives even today. Number one, men who can easily get passionate, but about the wrong things or, or at the wrong time. Secondly, men who cannot get passionate about the right thing. And I want to just draw those two things out as we glean from this passage. As we look into this text, we see that James admirably, along with John, had a passion and a zeal for the glory of God. Where are the others? You can say, LeGrand, whoa, 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 you're twisting the text too much. I promise you, I'm not. Well, what we have here in the passage is the Holy Spirit wants us to know these things. The Holy Spirit highlights these things for us to take note of and, and to think about and to meditate on. There are men who easily get passionate, but it, it leans toward the wrong things or starts off well and then it veers off into something where it's unrecognizable. And then there are men who get passionate about the, who cannot get passionate about the right things. And as we apply this to our heart, may the Lord guide us, keep us within right guardrails of His truth and His Word. I would remind you what Jesus says in the book of Revelation. I hate lukewarmness. So some of us would think with our personalities, well, I'm a little bit more calm, a little bit more quiet. We're speaking spiritually here. We're not saying you've got to go be Martin Luther and nail the theses to the, to the door of the church, but do you, do you have a passion and a glory, a zeal for the glory of God? Here we see a wonderful example, also at the same time, a, a bad example, much like Peter. Peter in the boat, and he has faith in Christ, and then he loses that faith just as fast as he got it, and he, and he falls uh, into the water. We talked about Peter's best moments and his worst moments happen to always be in the same moment, and uh, that's always an interesting and frustrating thing that we can, we can certainly relate to. As we look into this text, we find that the life of James is clear proof that, that God can use any kind of person. And that God can take someone like James and draw them in 
and mold them and to shape them. Take that passion that they have and to take the scriptures and to, to, to scrub off the sharp edges and to give them a shepherd's heart. And that's what we're going to find with James the Apostle. And that's always the need that, that we need to have is to ask the Lord to give us not only just a fiery passion, but a shepherd's heart. I mentioned that sometimes the most dynamic moments in the life of a believer in the first six months to a year that they come to faith in Christ. They have this passion for the Lord. They experience the transforming power of the gospel. Some of you have that story as well. You think about when you first encountered the truth of God, you were, you were working for your salvation or you believed that you were a good person. And there was a day that the Lord pulled the scales off of your eyes and you, you discovered what grace is all about, what the true gospel is. But then over the course of time, what happened to you? What happened to you, dear brother and sister in Christ? You've grown cold and you've grown lukewarm. And so we see James's personality in some of these texts that show us his fiery dynamic. While he was called a son of thunder, he had a passion for the Lord, even to the point of a fault. And I want to make one other point of application very quickly. We often see in Jesus' life and ministry where there's moments of absolute disdain. There's moments of absolute rejection to his teaching. Uh, denial of his miracle powers. For example, when I mentioned Jairus' daughter, if you remember that context, he made those in the house that day leave. That's why James was one of the only ones who was, who was present there to see that miracle. And oftentimes we, we have this sense of zeal for the Lord, but even Jesus himself did not see fit to respond in the flesh. Of course, he was without sin, but Jesus never tried to defend himself. He never tried to respond in key moments except to give a word of judgment when it was appropriate over the compounded effect of time, to tell them of their coming judgment. But we don't see Jesus respond in the flesh like we are tempted often to respond. Number one, James's background. Number two, James's personality. But number three, James's weakness. James's weakness. Early in his ministry as following Christ as a disciple, we begin to see a couple of things emerge and as you put these texts together, often is the case in New Disciples, as I mentioned. And the first core heart sin, and this is kind of in our flow with our Sunday school classes, we look at this, the respectable sins of the Christian life. But the first heart sin that we see is an overestimation of self, or pride, you could say. An overestimation of self, or pride. Oftentimes in these texts, James thought of himself more highly than he ought to think. James's heart at times was filled with pride by being chosen as an inner disciple, if you will, by this privilege. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, Jesus reminds his disciples, and us as well, that a disciple is not above his teacher. Matthew 20, verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And there's times where James and John and Peter and Andrew, they forget these things. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul says, For I say that the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, listen, not to think of himself, a man should not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, to think correctly as God has dealt with each one the measure of faith. Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 3, if anyone thinks of himself or thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Lastly, Proverbs 16 verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. One of the core sins we see in James's life is a pride or an overestimation of self. Instead of humbly and simply relying upon the will of God to be made known to him, asking the Lord, how can we serve? What would you have us to do? Second weakness we note is not only an overestimation of self, but an underestimation of suffering. All of Jesus' disciples did not get this aspect in Jesus' teaching and preaching ministry, but it's one that Jesus makes particularly clear to James. And as we look at the end here in just a few moments of James's death, we're going to find that he truly came to know what was the baptism of Christ. The baptism of suffering. So the second core attitude is we see about his weakness and his personality, just his weakness in general, was an underestimation of suffering. In fact, Matthew 20, 22, after James asked to sit at Jesus' right hand, Jesus asked him this. He says, Do you not know what you ask, or you do not know what you ask? 
Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now, what should have been a stop moment, a moment where the mouth stops moving, this is what they say. We are able. We are able, Jesus. And it's obvious that they have no clue of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection yet. They're still learning. They're hearing, but they're not getting. And friends, we're the same way. So oftentimes we hear, but we're not hearing. We hear it up here, but we're not hearing it up here. Time and time again, his disciples and his apostles hear that suffering is about to enter in. There is a cross to carry and a death that each of them will be required to fulfill. And that they think they're able, fully sufficient, to drink of the cup and to follow through in the, quote, baptism of suffering that Jesus himself will be baptized with. And remember, this cup is God's wrath for his son. The baptism is one of suffering and persecution and affliction. And these men respond in immaturity by saying, yes, James among them, we are, we are ready. This is like a child coming to ask of their, well, it's not like a child. This is completely otherworldly different. But it's obvious to the knowledge of others saying, you have no clue what you're asking. You have no ability. You're not ready yet. You're not mature enough. And as these men assent to the call of Christ in this particular way, Jesus knows they are not ready yet for what he has called them to. I want to take a note here as we think about James underestimating suffering in his call. Underestimating the call of Christ upon him in relation to suffering. Let's not act like this is just James either, friends. The modern church today is ignorant of suffering for Christ. And I'll tell you why. Men like me do not do a good enough job of preaching it, making clear that disciples are ready to understand that if they are faithful in Christ Jesus, if they are faithful in the gospel that has changed them, they live it, they shine as lights and are salt that prevents decay, there will come a point where there's going to be a cost. Being a disciple means trusting in Christ alone, but it also means knowing that the road of following Christ is marked with perils. It's marked with enemies who, who don't like your message and much pain and suffering. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul makes this verse very clear, this thought very clear in what is often a neglected passage. In Philippians chapter 2, he tells the church there, he says, Do all things without complaining and murmuring, so that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. So Paul is calling the church to remember their calling. Remember, you're called to shine, as he says, as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. When you conform your life, church, to the word of God, when you live by faith, living in obedience to the clear command of Scripture, you will reach a point, if you fully follow that, where you're going to be ridiculed. You do what? You believe in what? Why do y'all do what you do? Or why did you make that decision? Or whatever it may be. There's going to come a point in your job or in, in, in different ways of your public sphere life where public uh, persecution will come your way. In fact, this is what Paul wants them to know. He, he says in verse 17 of, of chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, he says, I am about to be poured out as a drink offering. And then back in verse 1 of chapter 27, notice what Paul says. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or I'm absent, that I may hear of your affairs, that you, are, that you stand fast in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Not in any way, notice here, terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition. Paul is saying there are adversaries to the church. We, we not, we've not seen anything yet, church. There are adversaries to the church. It, it, when the, and I'm not even talking about what happened a week ago. I'm talking about legitimate physical affliction and persecution, more than words, more than the, the, the fear that may enter to the heart. When those people rise up in faith and practice, they are proof that they are a son of perdition. And then this is what Paul says. He says, for to you, church, and church, I want to say to you this morning, as we look at the pattern of James, for to you, it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, this is a gift of faith, all of God's grace, for to you, it has been granted to believe on Christ, but not only to believe in him, but notice, but also to suffer for his sake. Wait a second, what, Paul? Listen, we don't hear that enough. 
And it's my fault. And it's preacher's fault. It's the preachers of our land's fault. To call the church to beyond what they think is a, what we call a modern gospel. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He certainly does. But you need to understand that you're a sinner lost and, and headed to hell. You need to understand that God's wrath will come upon you. You need to understand the bad news before you can understand what the good news is. And as you understand that, as you're called from darkness into light, and as you take up your cross and by faith follow Him and live for Him, then you're called to share in His sufferings. And that's what Paul is saying. Is just as much as faith is a gift for you in salvation, with that is suffering as well. But here's the problem. We don't want suffering. Who wants suffering? I don't, and you don't. But what the Holy Spirit of God does is, but if it's for Him, then we do. We will live for Him. We desire Him. This is how Christ changes us. This is the difference that Christ makes. In the flesh, we don't want to suffer. We want to preserve and pamper our natural selves. But in the spirit of the gospel, we begin to have a vision of who our holy God is, as Brandon read from Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. When Isaiah saw the right vision of who God was, his posture went from disobedient, and he thought he was good, to here am I, send me. And in that, in, in that ascension, in that response, he didn't know what the future held for him. Isaiah did not know, listen church, that he would be sawed in half, as tradition tells us, through a log of wood. He would be placed into a hollow log and literally killed by a saw going through his midsection, some traditions say. All Isaiah said was, look, I've seen a vision of your glory. Here am I. Do with me what you will. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, gives us that famous passage where he describes the sufferings of Christ and how part of being a disciple of Christ, being like our master, is to share in his afflictions and in his sufferings. And this is part of James's weakness, not only an overestimation of self and an underestimation, secondly, of his sufferings, but thirdly, very quickly, a failure to understand the heart of Christ. A failure to understand the heart of Christ. And friends, this is our repeated sin as well. Time and time again, we see these apostles. So, for example, Luke 9.55, Luke 9.55, where Jesus turns to them and he rebukes them and says to them, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. This is, this is not of the Holy Spirit. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. We see this example all throughout the Scriptures uh, that, that God came to seek and to save the lost, particularly Matthew one twenty one. You shall call his name Jesus, for he has come to save his, his people from their sins. And it's almost as if Jesus is regularly looking at his disciples and saying, whoa, 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 we're, we're, you're not Elijah. And you're thinking Old Testament. You're thinking in the, the knowledge that you have, but you're missing the message that I have for you now. The gospel is here. The Messiah is here. The kingdom of God is here. And I'm commissioning you to go and to preach the good news of the gospel to heralds. No, guys, I don't want you to call down fire. I want you to go forth in my name and to minister to those who are filled with evil spirits and those who are afflicted and diseased, those who need to hear the message of the good news of salvation. The longer we walk with Christ, we begin to get his heart pattern. We move beyond ignorance. We move beyond a head knowledge, and we move into a heart knowledge, and we get that by the word of God. All scripture is sufficient for our learning and our admonition, the doctrine and the truth of scripture. In the same way that preachers may get frustrated that people don't hear them or that they read passages of scripture and yet do not understand what that is, Jesus at times, no doubt, grew frustrated that his disciples were not getting it. And all of us as disciples realize that we can hear things, see things, but not truly, truly understand. The last thing I want to draw to our attention and glean this morning about this profile of James in these passages is that like we as well, number four, James was too quick to judge. James was too quick to judge. In this passage where he and James asked Jesus to call down fire, this text tells us that, and they went into other villages and moved on, essentially. They just quietly moved on. Jesus quietly, by example, says, no fire, no destruction, we move on. Now, why did Jesus do that? And how do we know when to do what? How do we know when we're to be filled with a zeal for God's glory as, as Jesus was? 
in the temple, having a zeal for the Father's house, and when not to, just by way of example. And the, the bottom line answer is we need the Holy Spirit. We need to be constrained by the Holy Spirit. Now, the disciples did not have the Holy Spirit at this point. We understand that. And Jesus will tell them when he comes, he will lead you in sin and righteousness and judgment. He will teach you these things, and he will equip you and lead you in the way that you should, that you should go. But as we think about James being too quick to judge, we're often the same way. People are not where we are at. We have discovered some measure of growth and grace, or we, we've come into some, some understanding of, of truth and deeper knowledge of God that's revealed through His Word. It's beyond a superficiality, if you will. It's to a means of maturity. And what do we do? We quickly begin to judge those who five minutes ago were just like us. We come into some knowledge of the truth. We come into some understanding of how the Lord works, His character, His attributes, and His knowledge. And we respond in the same way that these disciples do. And friends, it's a reminder to us that we do not have the foreknowledge of God. We do not have the knowledge of God, period, other than what He has, has given to us. And Paul's principle in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, is very helpful for us to remember. Where Paul says, listen, church, therefore, do not be early with your judgment. Do not be quick to, to judge. Be discerning, no doubt about it. We're not saying to be fooled and easily led away. But church... Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. You say, well, what's your point? What we see in Scripture is this. After the resurrection, Jesus did not forget about this little town. This little town whose history goes all the way back to Elijah calling down fire upon them. It's where James and John would have done the same as well. What we find is after the resurrection in Acts chapter 8, verse 5 through 14, Jesus appointed and sent Philip to preach the gospel back to this town and this area. And guess what, folks? Surprise, surprise. Many were saved. Just like when Peter stood up to preach the gospel on the day of Pentecost. Fiery Peter, bold Peter, but yet controlled by the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus looks them in the face and says, many of you delivered this same Lord and Christ, this same Jesus, and you delivered him to be hung on a tree. And on that, at the end of that sermon, as Jesus boldly, uh, Peter boldly preaches the gospel to them, many said, what must we do to be saved? They call upon the name of the Lord. Their, their hearts were quickened by the Holy Spirit. We're quite frankly too quick to judge. Let's remember the teaching of Scripture. Therefore, judge nothing before the time. How judgmental we can be, friends. Oftentimes, those who are judged also are guilty of a reverse judgmentalism. We're all guilty of judgment. May the Lord show us these things in the ways it gets in the middle or hindrances our ability to see people as God sees them, as souls who need the gospel, seeing men made in the image of Christ. So this is a great reminder for us as we think about God's plan is not through until he is ready for that to happen. Number four, I want us to see lastly, or second to lastly, James's transformation. And just very quickly, in Galatians 2 verse 9, much like Peter, Paul gives us insight into who James is. And he describes this passionate, zealous son of thunder as a man who was transformed by the grace of God. And he mentions him into this way in this listing in Galatians 2 verse 9, that he is a pillar of the church. He is a foundation stone of the church. And again, it's a reminder of God's sanctifying grace in our lives as, as he conforms us into the image of God. Now, do you remember when we mentioned James would be required to drink the cup much like his Lord and Master, Jesus Christ? And that's exactly what happened. Lastly, number five, we see James's death. James's death. Turn with me to Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So we look at this full process of James's growth and grace, becoming familiar with this disciple who Jesus would call to his service and use. What a beautiful tapestry of God's transforming grace. Church, I hope you're strengthened and edified as you think about your own coming to faith in Christ and the fact that God's not through with you yet. And in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, 1 through, yeah, 1 and 2, I want you to follow along with me. Now about the time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church, so then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. 
And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him, Peter, in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people of the Passover, after the Passover. We're very familiar with Peter. We're familiar with this account in Acts chapter 12 where Peter was thrown into prison. If you know the, the fuller context there, this is that miraculous story where the prayer meeting convenes and Peter is, is released from prison. But here, oftentimes, we will simply skip over that first two verses. And James, the brother of John, was killed with a sword. This is that full evolution of that persecution that we were describing. James is not considered to be an old man here. He's considered to be about 40 years of age. One church father says this, Clement of Alexandria. We don't know this for sure, so I want to qualify that, but this is what he says in church history. just describes James's death in this way. He says, The one who led James to the judgment seat when he saw him bearing his testimony was moved and confessed that he himself was also a Christian. Now, if that sounds fantastic to you, it shouldn't. Because if you remember, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul commends the church at Philippi that's saying the very reason that he is chained is because the word of uh, the Spirit of God has caused him to be chained and imprisoned. And because of his imprisonment, many within the household of Caesar, if you remember, have come to faith in Christ. And Paul says, and they greet you. Do you remember that, church? He says, they greet you. Well, here, if this is true, just by way of an example, we see someone who's within the regime, and yet they are a secret Christian, if you will. And he says, if you were of the, uh, excuse me, he says uh, that he himself was also a Christian. They both, therefore, were then led away together, and on the way he begged James to forgive him. And James, after considering for a brief moment, said, peace be with thee, and kissed him. And thus they were both beheaded at the same time. Well, we do not know for sure if this is true. Scripture does not tell us it is true, but if it is true, it's an example of what Acts chapter 12, verse 2 tells us, that he was killed with a sword. Here we see the full process of James. James reaching a point to where he does not dismiss the cup of Christ. And I want us to conclude this morning by turning to one more passage, John chapter 15. John chapter 15 for our purposes today is Grace Church. We've, we've looked at this little mini biopic of James and just trying to pull some things out of some short few verses of Scripture. But church, this is the message I hope we, we walk away with here this morning. James, John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. We need to hear this afresh and anew as we think about Paul saying, the gift of salvation is not only given to you, but also the call to suffer. So I've got a question for you, every single one of you, and myself as well. Do you suffer for Christ? Ever? Some of you have. When is the last time you've suffered for Christ? Not that you're, a, you're, you're looking for attention, not that you're seeking it, but the Bible makes clear if we live faithful to Christ and we live faithful to the gospel, we will suffer persecution. Again and again, all those who live godly and in Christ Jesus, Paul says, will suffer persecution. Let's hear the words of Christ as we, as we turn to John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. I thought I had turned there. Give me one second. John 15, 18. This is what he says. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. And at times the disciples thought they were above that. They, they thought they were. And Jesus gives them that strict word, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, know this, they will persecute you. Church, Grace Church, if they persecuted Christ, and they did, and you are one of his disciples, you will be persecuted. Not in the same way, but it will cost you something. What I'm afraid of is too far too often when there might be a cost in view for us, we just cave. We just, we just, just go with the flow. When we begin to get any hint of cost or thinking that somebody might think we're strange because of a gospel conviction that we have or just following Christ, we cave on it. Or we must honestly ask ourselves, why don't I ever suffer persecution? 
And if that's because of God's wonderful grace, then great. You're living faithfully, you're following his will for your life, then all glory be to Christ. But if it is that you stop talking when you should speak, if it is that you do not speak for Christ when he gives you a window of opportunity, if it is that you change your principles according to the scriptures so that you can just fit in with the crowd, then friends, you're not living faithfully to the gospel. And I'm not living faithfully to the gospel. Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I, had to come and sp- if, I had co- if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened, notice, that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Oftentimes you and I will agree and assent to the fact that men hate Christ. But friends, we need to be called afresh and new to understand God gave us this gift of salvation, this glorious gift of salvation. And a part of what that gift is, is suffering. Physical suffering, affliction, not that we seek it, not that we desire it. But what men should see is us navigate the topography of life, trials, sufferings, pains, disappointments, heartaches, afflictions, and to say, whoa, you are not like us. You don't think like us. You don't operate like us. What, what, what is your, what is, what, what's driving you? And they ask, as Peter says, of the hope that lies within us. Do friends ever ask you of the hope that lies within you? Now, that is the question I want us to leave today with as we've considered James's example, as we consider our own call as disciples of Christ. What about me? If I've freely taken the cup of his suffering, do I own it? And when that time for me comes, will I stand even if it costs me much. A disciple is not greater than his master. And we see that in the life of James. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth and your word. And we thank you for just the call in Scripture that reminds us of our calling. So, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with convictional boldness. Lord, whether we ever experience what we would call persecution or suffering, that's up to you. But, Lord, our job is to be faithful, a faithful steward, a faithful servant, a faithful disciple. And, Lord, we desire to be faithful and to live godly in Christ Jesus. Father, I just want to pray a prayer over our church specifically. Lord, I pray that you would protect each home. And, Lord, that you would raise up the men and women of these homes, Lord, to lead the coming generations and to be faithful with where you've planted them. That everyone who knows them in the, in the ball clubs, at the job, in the hobbies, at the at the sports facilities, and whatever the hobby, wherever they go, and the people they interact with. Lord, I pray that they will know of their testimony, their love for Christ, their living for His glory, that they will have experience being witness to at some point of, as, as those relationships grow, and that they will know this person, one of our members here at Grace, that they are a disciple of Christ. And Father, I pray in the future that when times of, quote, decision must come, or they must stand with Christ, and that means loss for them, I pray they'll be faithful. I pray they will fear God more than men. I pray that they will fear the God who has power over body and soul, and not just men who have maybe some measure of power over the body. Father, we fear you and you, you alone. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for saving us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.